Hello, and welcome to the Chemistry at University podcast. This is a series aimed at sixth form students in the United Kingdom who are studying A-level chemistry and who want to gain an insight into studying chemistry at university. My name is Max Taylor, and I'm a third year chemistry undergraduate at Durham University who studied chemistry, maths, and physics at A-level. In this six episode podcast series, I'll be speaking to three Durham professors across inorganic, organic, and physical chemistry. We'll be taking a look at what they teach at undergraduate level, and I should then build on this by giving you a basic introduction to these concepts so you can get a feel for what you would learn in a university chemistry course. We shall then take a look at their research so you can get an idea of where a career in chemistry could take you, as well as what you can work on in the near future as an integrated master's student. In today's episode, we shall be showing you the second part of my interview with Professor Jonathan Steed, who is a professor of inorganic chemistry at Durham University. Last time, we looked at his teaching and some of the concepts that you'll learn in an undergraduate chemistry course. Today, we shall build on this by looking at his research and experiences as an editor of a scientific journal. Before we get started, please remember that there is a PDF handout associated with this episode, which you can find in the podcast episode notes. If you would like some additional information and visual resources that relate to the topics discussed, then I would recommend you have a look at the handout. Anyway, let's get on with it and get on to the second part of our interview. Okay, so we're now going to move on to some questions about your experiences in research. So we're, we're going to move on from, um, your, from your lecture courses. So I, I understand that you were recently appointed as the editor-in-chief of the American Chemical Society's Crystal Growth and Design Journal. So uh, just for our listeners who might not be aware, scientific journals are where, where research findings and, and papers are published. So if you, if you do an experiment and discover something new, uh, then you want to tell people about that, and you do that by publishing it in a scientific journal. Sort of like a magazine, but, but for new scientific discoveries. Uh, so obviously, Professor Steed, you, you've now had quite a lot of perspective as, as both an, an author of papers for, for many years now, but also as an editor who decides the fate of those papers. So I was just wondering, sort of from those two viewpoints, if you could please tell me about how researchers write papers and how the process works, so that if any of our listeners are, are debating a career in research, they can gain a better idea of what it entails and what they might be doing. Yes, yeah, so uh, science publishing is this strange sort of dystopian, dysfunctional activity that your listeners will probably come across over the next few years. Uh, the idea is that you you carry out research in a laboratory or if you're a theoretician on your computer. And after much thought and hypotheses and testing, ultimately you want to tell the world about it. And the way you do that is a research paper. And crudely, it's a magazine article. Um, but, but it's a highly technical magazine article with a method section that explains exactly what you did and what that science means, ideally. Uh, and some of the most impactful we published in journals like Nature, uh, where, which have a um, general uh, interest across science. There are many other more specific journals that, that relate to particular areas of, of science. Um, there's a whole hierarchy of which journals more important and which, uh, which one's the best place to publish your research and who will read it and so on. And governments judge scientists by, by, by um, the hierarchy of these journals and, and where they're published. It's a, it's a very strange activity. But crucially, of course, the message is that we do science when we want to tell people about it so that society can benefit from public money that goes into research. And that's the idea. Um, the way in which this process is done is obviously you write your paper with its message and, and, its, and its methods so that people can reproduce your chemistry. And then it's sent to a journal, to an editor, um, and that's me. Uh, and that editor will send it out to um, a number of referees, which are other academics or industrialists working 
in that area of science. And those referees will write back and say whether they think the science is right, uh, whether they think there's more experiments that need to be done, and whether it's appropriate for the journal, whether it's impactful enough to make nature, or whether it should be published a journal of useless results. Um, and all of those journals exist, J failed experiments. And, um, and the academics are very keen to publish their journal, their papers in the right journals and so on. And so what an editor's role is, is to set um, journal priorities, um, publicize the journal. I have a journal Twitter account. Uh, we, we have um, talks that are done to promote the journal um, and to advertise the area of science generally. Um, I have a team of editors who are working on papers and I decide which papers they look at. And, uh, and then when the journal's referees report back, the editor looks at the referee's opinions in the round, weighs the various judgments against them and makes a decision based upon the journal's scope and its priorities as to whether that paper is gonna be published, whether it should be revised before it's published, or whether it's not appropriate. And to give you some idea of numbers, um, in, in a journal like Nature, which your, your listeners may have seen on the magazine shelves, which is a hard science journal, these kinds of papers are published there, 90% um, of the submissions to Nature will be immediately rejected by the editorial office without even getting as far as referees. And then another 9% will, will be kicked out by the referees. So you're talking around 1% of papers getting into Nature. It's very competitive. No uh, my own journal, the, the, the statistics are a little bit more, more mild, but we're still fairly discerning. The American Chemical Society is the largest chemical society in the world. We like to think we've got some, uh, some measure of scientific prestige for, for our papers as well. Uh, but mine are obviously in the air, specific area of crystal growing and crystal designing. In other words, crystalline materials, um, things like think semiconductor coatings and so on, or for that matter, pharmaceutical solid forms. Those are the kind of things we publish. So I've been doing editing for about 20 years now. I started in, with the Royal Society of Chemistry and French um, CNRS journal, New Journal of Chemistry in 2001. And then um, throughout the, the second decade of the 2000s, I worked on the Royal Society of Chemistry journal, Chemical Communications. And I guess that experience put me in charge of uh, the ACS Crystal Growth and Design. And uh, I've been doing that for a year now. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, the BGs, you can do it from home. Uh, my US team, Obviously, we interact by Zoom all the time anyway, so the pandemic didn't stop us in our tracks too much. And it's certainly very interesting. There's, there's a lot of independence and a lot of ability to uh, to influence the the, uh, the direction and scope of the journal and, of course, to promote it. So I see a lot of the chemistry that's done in the crystalline materials, materials area that comes across my desk throughout from throughout the world. Uh, we have editors in China, in India, in South Africa, in the US, in the UK, in Europe. Um, and submissions from all over. And so I, I get a pretty good overview as to what's going on in the world in terms of my field. And that, that's really exciting. That's really fun. So it sort of shows that um, just how collaborative research can be, I guess. Like some people can worry it might be quite solitary. And uh, like you say earlier, you know, you've got to take accountability for, your, for, your, for yourself. So I guess it does show you get to, like, as you just said, you get to see, speak to colleagues all over the world and really get to see what everyone else is doing out there. So it's... Um, I also noticed it shows um, from what you just said that you get a, get a wider view than rather than just the chemistry. You know, you talk about the marketing and I know you're very active on Twitter on both uh, your own handle and the, um, you know, the, the journals Twitter. So I think it, I guess it shows just that the, the wider um, business development activities you get to do, um, you know, and the wider opportunities available as a, um, in, in the field of chemistry. 
That's right. And, and this is academia in general. And all of this comes from uh, science training, a science PhD or a PhD in, in your own particular area. Your listeners may not become chemists, but academic academia is a very wide ranging kind of activity. And you start with a knowledge of science and you end up, as you say, in, in all these kinds of different areas, depending upon your own interests. So I'm into publishing and, and the marketing and publishing. Other colleagues will be more business development. They'll have spin-out companies like my colleague, Carl Coleman, who's head of department at Durham, um, is, um, is well, he's the founder of Durham Graphene Science. And so you can buy his graphene sprays in Alfreds, for example. And he's more entrepreneurial uh, as opposed to a communicator like me. But we all have our skills beyond just our knowledge of science, for example. And you're right, it's super collaborative. It, it, it's super communicating. People do research in teams. They exchange results at conferences. Even now in this pandemic, um, yeah, I, every day I'm on to Zoom with, with people throughout the world um, and, uh, and we're thinking of new research ideas, how to work together. Science is so big now that there's not much room for doing things by yourself. Um, okay, thank you very much. That's, that's really interesting, even from my perspective as a third year undergraduate, I still have had limited exposure to, to this sort of world. So um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will find that um, very interesting, uh, which links perfectly into my next question, which is um, for those of our listeners who aren't aware, um, a lot of universities uh, allow you to do a four-year integrated master's where you'll spend your fourth year working with a research group such as uh, Professor Steed's research group and conducting your own research, your own project uh, and producing a piece of work that quite often, to my understanding, does end up being published. Um, so. Um, Professor Steed, I was just um, wondering if I could ask you, um, I'm aware your project students this year have just started, so can you tell me a little more about what our listeners could expect if they choose to do an integrated master's, uh, sort of what your recent students have done and what they undertake, what, what the life is like, uh, just so they can expect, you know, understand what to expect. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the, the, the research project in, in the fourth year MCHEM, uh, for example, is, is the real jewel in the crown, I think, of if you have an interest in doing research and doing science, as opposed to using a science degree as a springboard to a white collar kind of career, uh, then, then this, is, this is absolutely a fantastic experience and everybody really enjoys it very much. And so um, in non-COVID times, typically uh, half, of, well, half of the marks for the final year, which is well, the mark distribution is, is, is four, three, two in, in years four, three and two. So it's a substantial proportion of the MCHEM uh, grade. And half of half of that fourth year is, is a research project. So that will be doing brand new research that's never been done before. It's research that the student owns themselves. They'll typically be supervised if it's a laboratory project by um, uh, an experienced researcher, a PhD student or postdoc. And we'll work closely with the academic in charge of the group. In my group, it'll be weekly group meetings and lots of informal chats. Um, of course, no plan survives contact with the enemy, and so we'll have an idea as to what we actually want to do, and then straight away the research results will tell us something different, and we have the freedom to, to follow our heads and, and go, hmm, that's funny, let's follow up on that. So, yeah, people start out, um, it's quite intimidating, you start out in a research lab where previously you've had a script to follow as an undergraduate, and you, you, you do the experiment that's prescribed in the course of the afternoon, and hopefully get the right result. In a research lab, it's very different. You've got an idea, maybe a, maybe something to make to start with, and then all these facilities surrounding you. And then it's up to you standing there to go, okay, I wanna make this compound. How am I gonna do that? Where's the glassware? Let's find it. Where are the instrumentation that I can use to measure the outcome? Where's the NMR spectrometer, the infrared spectrometer? All these tools are here, all these levers to pull. Uh, and it's about 
deciding what you want to know and, and how, you, how you're going to find it out. And of course, you have a great amount of guidance and a lot of people to talk to, to, to start finding your way through that make it up as you go along aspect of research. And that's what students do over the course of six months. And as you say, very often they, they achieve some notable feats of new research and, um, and, they, um, and they often publish that research in, in journals. Six months is, is enough that a small project can be completed. And so I had one, um, one MCHEM project research student, uh, what about 15 years or so ago now, who um, perhaps not, the, not even the brightest student I've ever had, but an extremely hardworking and curious and friendly kind of guy. Um, and he achieved uh, two prestigious papers during the course of his MCHEM, and he started a whole new direction in gels chemistry for us, which uh, we're still doing to this day. And that was because he happened to make some compound that happened to form gels. And he said, well, that's funny. And he showed them to me and I said, oh, I think gels are kind of important. Um, why don't you go and find out something about them? And so he went and collaborated with some of the physical chemists. He got a bunch of measurements done that I didn't know how to do. I, I know a bit about rheology now, which is the science of flow. I didn't know anything then, but he found out about it. And uh, it's become part of our research ever since. And, uh, and that's led to a whole area of, of research for us, which is the use of design gels to crystallize pharmaceuticals, to change the bioavailability of, of insoluble drugs, which we now collaborate with big drug companies on, students sponsored by AstraZeneca, by GlaxoSmithKline, um, and I've become very involved in pharmaceutical crystalline chemistry by virtue of that one MChem student's initial results and his curiosity. So uh, I take my hat off to him. Um, it, was, uh, it was his ability to do science and, and be curious about it that led us into that direction. And that's not untypical of an MChem research project. You're making your own compounds um, and you're looking at their properties with all the facilities that are available at a, at a research-led university like Durham. Um, and I'll put the plug in, you know, Durham is one of the top five research-led universities in the country. And the facilities for curious people with, with interesting molecules are, are really outstanding. And so you can achieve a lot. Um, and so, as I say, that guy got two papers out from his research. And it, well, while very few have got two papers out, very many get one paper out. And, uh, their name is immortalized in the scientific journals for all time. And uh, they can be looked up in a hundred years time and uh, they'll still be there long after our bones have turned to dust. So, uh, so it's, it's a fun activity. It's a chance for uh, sort of students listening to maybe even contribute things to science within, you know, the next three to four years, you know, they could be there actually doing things that, as you say, you know, steer research and, um, steer the activities of research groups that's actually really interesting to uh i'm sure it's very interesting for a lot of our readers to, to hear about you know just how soon they could actually be be doing some of these things you talk about because it, it can feel very very distant when you're sitting there slogging through your a levels you know the idea of publishing papers and actually understanding this sort of high level science can seem very distant so that's actually a very interesting to to hear yeah and let me give a message of hope to your listeners that that, that when you've done all this, uh, all this book learning and whatnot, there is a point to it that when you have a language of science and you're familiar with the techniques that are used, that then it gets to be really interesting when you've got um, a scientific problem that you're trying to crack. It's a doing activity. You, you are dealing with, you know, colorful vials of, of, of materials in the lab and, uh, and you're carrying out tests that you decide what to do. And you're really curious to find out the result when that spectrum comes off the spectrometer. You really want to know where those peaks are and if they're where you hope you were, yes. Got it. Worked. I remember coming down uh, the stairs in, in, as a postdoc in the old University of Alabama labs. My first reaction that I'd done 
hadn't understood it to start with. And then uh, the, the old nuclear magnetic resonance machine came up with a spectrum that made it all make sense. And I came down the stairs waving this piece of paper. And my professor was down the bottom with the research group having a chat in the corridor. And I said, I've got it, got it. And, um, and they looked at it and nodded sagaciously and, and said, yeah, I think that's it. And uh, sure enough, we published a paper in a very prestigious journal just a couple of months time. And uh, still proud of that paper to this day, what, 25 years on. Oh, there you go. That really is a message of hope to all our all our third years out there struggling with exams and <laughs> and everything. Um, okay, so so we'll link that on. Um, I think this gives us a perfect route into your your current research, um, which obviously you you've briefly talked about um, in regards to the MCAM. Um, so obviously your your main research area is in supramolecular chemistry. Uh, which you are also the author of the uh, one of the main textbooks uh, of, which does actually happen to be on my recommended reading list this year for one of my modules. Uh, so I was just wondering if you could uh, maybe tell me a little bit about um, both your your research area as well as um, what it, what it's like to actually have literally written the book on it. Yeah. Um... So supramolecular chemistry is a fancy name for something very simple. It's just about the way in which one molecule interacts with another. So normally chemistry is about making molecules, in other words, making covalent bonds to build up the structure of a molecule. So that's important in my research, but what I'm really interested in is how one molecule then goes on to interact with other molecules around it. So for example, as in a crystal, that's just loads of molecules packed together that are interacting with each other. Um, in, a, in, a, in a material, a material is made up of multiple molecules in two or three dimensions uh, with its bulk properties. And all that arises from um, the way in which molecules interact with each other. So, so that's all we're talking about. Uh, you can imagine if you're doing sensing, for example, if you smell something with your nose, then, then the smell molecule goes up your nose and interacts with the receptor protein. That's supramolecular chemistry. It's about the recognition of, of the um, odor for the smell molecule by, by the recognition protein in, in your nose. Equally, the, the properties of materials arise from the way in which the molecules interact with one another. So um, I'm interested in, in two aspects, one of which is applied um, in the pharmaceutical industry and one of which is very fundamental. Um, so in the applied sense, we're interested in how molecules build together to make crystals and the properties of a drug substance depend upon its solid form. So uh, how soluble it is, how bioavailable it is, how easy it is to make into a tablet. Um, and so how it gets into the bloodstream and into the body depends upon the crystal form uh, and the stability of those crystals and their shelf life and their processability and whether they're needles or plates or whatever. So um, that's very real world chemistry and, and the intellectual property surrounding crystal forms is worth trillions of dollars annually, it's huge. So if you can influence crystal form and, and make drugs better by influencing crystal form, then, then you're doing something useful and, and of, of commercial value. Although I hasten to add, I don't make money from it myself. I'm an academic. Uh, we just, we, we do chemistry for the world. Um, on the flip side of it, the, the more fundamental aspects, the, the way we influence crystal form is these gels, first discovered by the MChem student 15 years ago. And uh, we design a gel, and it literally, when I say a gel, I mean something like jelly. Um, and we design the chemical properties of that, that jelly to crystallize um, the drug molecules in the way that we want them to be. And so all a gel is, is, is kind of fibers that are interlacked together. Imagine like a spider's web, basically. Um, and water is, is held within the spider's web by, a, by surface tension effects. If it's a hydrogel, a water gel, 
And then you can use that gel to influence the crystallization outcome of drug molecules dissolved in the liquid phase within that composite material. And of course, you don't have to use water, you can use all kinds of organic solvents. And, uh, and we're interested in, in how the gel assembles, what intermolecular interactions go to um, give the gel its properties, its strength, its flow characteristics, uh, the point at which it tears, um, how you disassemble it, reassemble it, you make switchable materials. And so I'm, I'm very interested in the fundamentals of that process. And then, as I say, how we apply them in the pharmaceutical industry. Thank you very much. That's that's really, really interesting to know. Um, so I, I guess it's it's hard for me to sort of inform us as much about your fourth year course in this, because uh, I've not done it myself. But I do understand on top of the second year uh, course you teach that we mentioned earlier, you also lecture in a fourth year course uh, by the same name, Supermolecular Chemistry. Uh, so for, for those of our listeners who you know might go on to study that, can you just maybe tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that's right. As you alluded to, I, I wrote the first textbook in the area of supermolecular chemistry. That came from a, a conversation between um, my postdoctoral advisor, Jerry Atwood, and myself back in the 90s, when this was a really new area. And um, I kind of announced my uh, career by writing this book, uh, which was published in 2000. It was pretty difficult to do as a young academic and uh, wasn't a perfect effort. But that formed the basis of a course which I've taught in various guises over the years. Um, I was sufficiently... Uh, I felt it needed updating, so so I updated it in, in 2009. It was bit, it, the book was translated into Russian and Chinese, so it, it's permeated throughout the world, actually. And I remember visiting China in 2012 and speaking to a, a very old Chinese academic who said that he'd read the Chinese translation and, uh, and it had changed his research and his ideas on the world in days before China was really open to the world. So uh, that was really nice to hear and complimentary that, that people were listening to what I had said as a young academic um, really throughout the world, really nice to, to hear. So I've been telling students about supermolecular chemistry for 20 years or so. I've just written a third edition now and updated it, um, which uh, could be an enormous book. The publishers are kind of cross, it's gonna be 1500 pages, but uh, the, um, the fields got big and I didn't wanna miss anything out. <laughs> so that's why I did the first part of lockdown was to update the textbook. Um, the course I teach is only six lectures, so you, you don't need to read most of those 1500 pages to, uh, to enjoy the course. It's just an introduction to the way in which molecules interact with one another in biological systems, in materials, um, and in artificial systems as well. So students learn how uh, a host molecule, a receptor shaped like a, a cup, can bind a guest molecule in a sort of one-on-one -on -one molecular recognition sense, and they learn all about how that influence First of all, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1987, way back when, and then much more recently, the Molecular Machines Nobel Prize in 2016, which is very, very topical still. Uh, and all of that is underpinned by supermolecular chemistry. So we have some fun talking about the, the people and, uh, and the, the, the fun molecules that act like machines and molecular entanglements and topology and so on that, that go on. Um, and in fact, it's, it's not nearly as intimidating as it sounds. It's quite a visual, descriptive and fun course because it's about how molecules act in the same way that, that real world machines do. And that, uh, that also links into a course that I'm currently studying, which is in third year advanced organic chemistry, uh, the molecular machines topic, which, as, as you alluded to, uh, frequently references the Nobel Prize in the area and the idea of molecular machines and uh, energy ratchets things like that so exactly. it is it does start as you near the end of your degree at least at durham it definitely does start to become more of a consideration you know whether like you say you focus down in organic chemistry or organic it, it is a very very wide wide field exactly and courses are very interconnected and and, and what you 
the, the skills you learn in the earlier stage courses then inform um, these more sophisticated courses and, and you're ready to tackle them and, and think about these, these interesting real world topical problems. So I think, um, I think the last thing I'll, I'll finish with is, um, do you have any further advice or comments uh, for our listeners who um, may be considering studying chemistry at an undergraduate level, who are obviously currently thinking about their A-levels? Yeah, look, I'm biased. I've I, I really enjoyed my career in chemistry, but I think a career in, in, in experimental science generally it is, it is a really rewarding activity to do. You have skills that nobody else has, and those are both commercially valuable and fundamentally interesting. And if it doesn't seem like it makes sense what you're learning at the moment, you don't know why you're learning it, just a little tiny bit of trust. Um, the language of chemistry, for example, seems obscure to start with, but these are tools that you can use to then ask questions of the universe uh, and hopefully come up with some answers that will be useful to the world. And it's very quick that the that the fundamentals that you're learning get translated in, into real world um, chemical research. And so just take it on trust. If you find it vaguely interesting, then, then follow that through. There are no wrong answers. Usually you find interesting anything that you study in depth. So if you find yourself studying something in depth, often that, that catches your interest. So as long as you have a vague interest, keep going with it. Um, you'll get there very quickly. I think that's great advice to uh, everyone sitting there panicking over their impending chemistry exam. So thank you very much. Uh, and thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And uh, I'll speak to you in the next podcast. Thank you very much, Professor Steed. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Chemistry at University podcast. The aim of today's show has been to build on the undergraduate concepts that we discussed in the last episode and to show you some modern research areas of interest to inorganic chemists. I also really wanted to show you how scientific research works in terms of journals and scientific publishing, and I think John's insight as a journal editor was perfect for this. That's all for our interview with John, and next time we shall be interviewing Professor Anne-Marie O'Donoghue, who is a Professor of Physical Organic Chemistry here at Durham University. This episode will be particularly insightful for anyone who has enjoyed the organic chemistry parts of the A-level course, such as learning about reaction mechanisms. Finally, if you have any questions about today's episode or have any feedback, then my university email address is once again in the handout for this episode. There is also more information if you're interested in learning more about Professor Steed or any of the concepts that we've covered today. I hope to see you again in the next episode, and thank you again for listening. Bye! <laughs>